Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the offshore tax haven podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 8th, 2016. I am Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to Michael Ann Kyle and Emma Sando, uh, two super smart doctoral students I met at Harvard Law this week. Frank, say hi to two of our most loyal listeners. Howdy. This week on Twitter, we're pleased to welcome Wendy Parmet from Northeastern University School of Law, where she serves as the Matthews Distinguished University Professor of Law, Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs, Director of the Program on Health Policy and Law, and Associate Dean for Interdisciplinary Education and Research Support. We assume Wendy never sleeps. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be back. So before we get to some really interesting discussions, I think, about uh, issues that have uh, fallen out of the Flint crisis, uh, it's been a while since we uh, took the uh, detritus off our desks. Um, so, uh, Frank, uh, I, I've got a couple of, of issues just to quickly talk about. Um, the first is, of course, while uh, 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 we've been away from lightning rounds, we have had oral arguments in the Zubik against Burwell case, the uh, uh, the contra- contraceptive case. Um, two pieces to really recommend here. Uh, Tim Jost has a masterful summary. Uh, that's almost tautology, isn't it? Uh, Tim Jost with a masterful summary of the arguments on the Health Affairs blog. And Linda Greenhouse's opinion piece in The Times is well worth a read. It contains the delicious phrase, quote, hijacking evidently is this year's broccoli, unquote. I don't have too much to add of substance, except perhaps uh, uh, to uh, uh, voice my rather confused question whether any accommodation will be acceptable to the petitioners when all this has really uh, rung out. And second, to add my voice to the question whether the government conceded rather too much with regarding to accepting subjective religious beliefs, uh, which I think strikes me as, as very troubling going forward. And I only want to add that I will put on the show notes a compendium of posts by Marty Letterman on Hobby Lobby, Zubik, and related cases for a guide to the perplexed. The guide for the perplexed, indeed. Talking of being perplexed, um, there is a big question out there uh, for techies uh, uh, with regard to exactly what kind of law applies to mobile health apps, uh, an issue that we've discussed here before. I've referenced and have been somewhat dismissive of the uh, HHS OCR uh, mobile health apps FAQ page. Now they seem to have gotten together with ONC and the FDA and the FTC uh, to produce what they call a mobile health apps interactive tool. And it's on the FTC site, and we'll put a link in. Uh, in large part, I think the tool was developed to answer congressional critics who have been whining at HHS for failing to do anything about mobile data being unprotected uh, by HIPAA, uh, a proposition that strikes me as rather cheeky, given that HHS doesn't have the legal authority to make much of a dent here, and Congress seems uninterested in passing comprehensive privacy legislation. Um, if at nothing else, anyone teaching a class on mobile apps, uh, you should easily be able to keep the students occupied for a while with this interaction active tool. Although I do have to admit, I thought some of the answers were just a tad lacking. 
I do think this interactive tool might also be a very interesting preview for what HHS is going to come up with in the wake of its common rule revisions. And uh, I was actually speaking to this blockchain workshop at NYU on Monday, and uh, there was a definite interest there in more of these automated interactive tools to deal with the uh, labyrinth of overlapping privacy jurisdictions. So very interesting uh, find there, Nick. Yeah, I think once you uh, once you get into the sort of the mess that we, we see, you, you really do have to uh, come up with um, uh, some kind of charting or another strategy for dealing with just the sheer complexity here. Finally, my last little update. It's been a, a little while now, week or so, two week or three maybe, uh, since we saw the um, notice of proposed rulemaking from uh, HHS's uh, SAMHSA-SAMHSA uh, SAMHSA, uh, to amend and sort of generally modernize uh, part two CFR dealing with privacy protections for substance abuse. This has been really uh, quite political lately. The uh, agency's uh, response, at least the nut of it, seems to be to replace the multiple single consents required for disclosure to patients with a more general designation in the, quote, to whom section of the consent. There are very good arguments on both sides here, and I thought I'd give it a shout out because at the very least, this debate is now being fought out in public comments. In contrast, the parallel debate that's going on on this issue in Congress seems to just be dividing along party lines without discussion or compromise. Uh, it's a complex area, um, how you deal with multiple providers, comorbidities, um, how you include this kind of data in HIEs, the danger of excluding these folks from research cohorts and so on. Um, so it's it's a complex uh, piece. And I, I urge people, if they uh, they have a, a stake in this, to, to go and get involved in the comments. Um, there's also also, if you're interested, a new comment letter from the American Medical Informatics Association that just dropped, which makes a valid point, perhaps lost elsewhere in the debate, that rather than just perfect, protect one carve-out, substance use data, maybe uh, HHS should be looking at additional carve-outs, um, the ability for more segmentation of the EHR record and so on. By that letter, I assume the AMIA just got taken off the research community's Christmas card list. <laughs> yes, and um, I'm sure there'll be also interesting leads in data segmentation for privacy. Well, I wanted to jump into my financialization of healthcare beat with a couple of articles. Uh, one our listeners probably saw a bit of a hullabaloo about, which is a piece by Andrew Lowe and some other authors called Buying Cures Versus Renting Health, Financing Healthcare with Consumer Loans. And this piece uh, not only advocated for the availability of the equivalent of mortgages for large healthcare expenses. So, you know, let's say you, you get in an insurance plan and they don't cover the right chemotherapy, you'll be offered something like a mortgage, but also promoted the uh, use of securitization with a diversified pool of the loans. So exactly what we saw in the subprime crisis, sort of collateralized debt obligations. And we can, of course, play out the further permutations of financialization such that credit default swaps will also be offered uh, in this area. And, you know, I, I will link to some uh, satires on the uh, show notes, but I do think it's interesting to keep an eye on uh, the ongoing financialization of healthcare 
there. Um, one other article of potential interest is that apparently there's a mini trend in Britain of crowdfunding of funerals, thanks to uh, large funeral costs, people are going to crowdfunding sites. So between securitization of healthcare loans and crowdfunding of funerals, I guess all we need is uh, something with respect to a Kickstarter page for uh, births, and we'll cover from cradle to grave uh, financialization. Would Would you set up a patron page when I go? <laughs> Absolutely, Nick. Absolutely. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you. So let's uh, bring uh, Wendy into the conversation and bring some seriousness to the uh, to the event here, Wendy, um, and talk about lead and talk about flint. As I looked at this uh, without an iota of the expertise that you bring to the public health issues here, a couple of thoughts struck me. First, uh, We've known about lead and lead exposure for a long time. For example, even us uh, uh, ignorant torts lawyers uh, have probably long taught that well-known 2005 uh, Wisconsin case, Thomas against Mallet, which uh, applied very much the minority uh, rule here, applied market share risk contribution doctrine to uh, lead paint in that case, or uh, lead pigment more uh, accurately. That case uh, remains a very good read because it has a century-old history of some of the, at least the lead paint issues, and details about some of the, um, how shall I call it, industry feints in this area. The second piece that really struck me is that lead exposure of all of perhaps the public health uh, crises we've seen over the last decade or so, lead exposure seems to have immensely cruel targeting. It really does seem to seek out the poor and their children. So I wondered if you could start by giving us a little more context and what happened in Flint and start talking about the, the public health issues. Thank you so much. I, you know, I think one of the things that's has really struck me about the issue in Flint and the really egregious, egregious facts about what's happening in Flint is that it's it's everything we know and should know about public health. You know, the good, the bad, the ugly in a in a microcosm. It, it's um, one of the things that's so important here is that it shows us what happens um, when we don't think about public health, which is what we usually don't do. We usually don't think about public health. Public health prevention is invisible. It's we don't see the successes, we see the failures. And that's one of the stories of Flint about how easy it is to forget about public health impacts of things, you know, for relatively little money saved, um, a catastrophe is created. A second important point about what happened in Flint is what you mentioned about how public health neglect almost always, I won't say always, but almost always has an enormously disparate impact. And so the people who are already the worst off and the most vulnerable, the folks who have suffer from the worst health effects are the ones who are affected the most. And that is certainly the true with lead 
Um, it's been tr- it was true in Flint, and it's the story of of lead poisoning. And um, I, I, so, what happened in Flint is really what happens so often in this country and around the world. We don't think about the health impacts. Um, health problems are ignored and undermined and allowed. Um, decisions are made without thinking about the health impacts on particularly the most vulnerable populations. And then, lo and behold, we find that we have created, we have created, you know, the political system, the health system has allowed, the various bureaucratic systems have allowed the creation of a completely preventable epidemic that is particularly affecting the most vulnerable. And the sort of the last point I want to sort of make uh, as we get started here is that I think Flint also shows the danger of power without accountability. Um, We talk so much in public health. Indeed, for so many years, public health law has been focused on public health powers. What can government do? How robustly can government intervene in health? Right? We get a new epidemic. You know, Ebola comes along. A few people in the U.S. have Ebola, and all kinds of public health powers and authorities are asserted. We spend much less time in public health law, and our public health law is much less developed on the accountability and duty side. So the story in Flint is not the story of public health power. It's the story of lack of exercise of authority and how that can occur when there is so limited accountability and when governance is so weak, as it was in Flint, where you had a city basically being run by an unelected um official who's appointed by the governor, where the elected officials really have no authority, and there's no accountability. And so it's not really about power. Does the government have power to protect public health? The government had plenty of power to prevent this. It's about what happens when they don't exercise the authorities they have. And unfortunately, our public health law is much less robustly developed in those scenarios. So I'd like to hope we have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about that. Yes, and I wanted to jump in and to relate some of your work uh, to the crisis one day because I think that you know you've made so many contributions to the public health literature, and uh, the first of which is emphasizing the term solidarity and the importance of solidarity as a bioethical concept. And I think that you know we, when we teach bioethics and we think about it in health law, we often think about autonomy and benevolence and and other issues. And I think bringing solidarity to the forefront is key here. Um, The other thing that I think is so interesting is that this is one of those areas where even if we had the most crude cost-benefit analysis, this is so obviously fails even that test. Because, you know, I think it would have cost $80 a day to put in some of the anti-corrosion materials uh, here. And uh, now we've got a problem that's literally in the billions of dollars um, because of this very short-sighted austerity. And the last thing I wanted to just note about your work that I think is so interesting is the 2013 article, Valuing the Unidentified, um, the Potential of Public Health Law, where you talked about statistical victims. And I think clearly, you know, we we suddenly have, you opened that article with the Newtown shooting and the, the children that were, you know, the, the obvious victims of gun policy and at that point, or the, the, pro, the, or the, the clear victims of a situation where there's just out of control spread of a lot of implements uh, that are quite dangerous. 
And I think that, you know, in, similarly, uh, this might be an example where we suddenly see the unidentified. We suddenly see, you know, the people that are, uh, by and large, having IQ points knocked off, years of life knocked off by environmental impacts. Suddenly, a face is put to the name. And I think that, you know, the role of public health law in responding to that seems to be uh, really instrumental. I'm so glad you made that point, Frank, because I think that's exactly what I've been thinking about over the last several weeks as I've been thinking more and more about and reading more about the awful, awful facts about what happened in Flint. And you're right, from any, you know, if anybody did a legitimate cost-benefit analysis, the the water would have been treated for anti-corrosion. And yet, you know, as you say, the harms are not seen ahead of time. It's a little bit, again, what I'm talking about and when I say about the invisibility of public health, we don't see it until it is lost. So it is not adequately valued. And the lives that are affected are not seen until it's too late. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. Um, this is one of the challenges for public health practice and public health law and theory is how can we keep, you know, how do you factor in the public health effects, the public goods, when they are not seen, when they're not often counted in the kinds of crude cost-benefit analyses, you know, that, that are sometimes done. It's very hard. You know, government agencies are counting they're counting the dollars that go out in the contract for the water supply, right? They're not counting all of the externalities and public costs that happen down the road, many of which, of course, are not going to be covered, some of which will be, but many of which will not be covered by this, you know, the Flint Water Commission. You know, they're going to be picked up by all of us through Medicaid. They're picked up mostly by the people who are suffering this. So how do we change that analysis? And, I, I, you know, I do think that solidarity is important to this, that it's an important, that we have to understand and not separate ourselves from the people of Flint or the people who are affected by these kinds of decisions, the un, you know, the unidentified. But it is very challenging. One of the points I made in that article which you reference, which really relates very closely to what I said a few minutes ago, was that um, the challenge for public health law is often the lack of duty. And then we have, you know, our law is very underdeveloped in holding government officials responsible or accountable for their failure to exercise the public health powers, for their failure to prevent. And as you, you know, go through, as I have done, the, there are seven lawsuits now pending, um, at least seven. I don't know. I may not have found all of them about what's happened in Flint. But as I go through them and, you know, think about it, these are going to be very, very challenging cases. Um, there are a lot of immunities and there are a lot of various legal theories that make it hard for people who are hurt by government's failure to protect. And that's what really we're talking about, government's failure to do their job. It's still very hard for people um, to prevail on these kinds of claims. 
is is part of the sort of the the legal vacuum here that you sort of uh, alluded to earlier about stopping these things before uh, the the disasters uh, is this because of the tradition of uh, state control of public health uh, legal issues uh, which then sort of get overrided by uh, this sort of emergency uh, law that the governor in uh, Michigan uh, signed I think the the Daily Beast called it the law that poisoned Flint and it and it's hard to disagree with that um, so is there more of a role for the federal government here or are we kind of stuck in this um, state law place? Well, it's definitely true that part of what happened in Flint, and I think the governor's, um, the task force report that came out a few weeks ago really shows this, is, you know, there were so many different entities, local, state, federal, um, and they can all point the finger. And they did actually at the congressional hearings, you know, everyone's pointing the finger at someone else. But in truth, they all failed to do their job, or so it seems. But I think the problem that I want to mention is, is not simply that it's a state law issue as opposed to a federal, because I don't know if this was federalized, whether you necessarily get um, a better outcome. You might have in this particular case, but I think it, it's twofold. It's One is a governance issue, right? I mean, whether it's federal or state, the idea that decisions are being made that affect a population so significantly and the population is, in effect, disenfranchised is very, very troubling, right? I mean, we should be all troubled about that even if nothing happened. Secondly, it's the, the, the problem is compounded when you get, when you combine the disenfranchisement that happens because of the emergency management law with this then um, thicket of immunity doctrines and doctrines that we have that are designed to give administrative agencies um, robust freedom to act without worrying about legal consequence, you know, without fear of litigation. And these, and these doctrines have expanded and have been strengthened in recent years. And, you know, we could go through them. There's a whole array of them that impact public health actions or failures to act. And when you come, so when you combine the lack, you know, the legal, I'm going to use the word immunity here now in a, in a non-technical sense, when you combine the elite, the legal immunity with the electoral disenfranchisement, you know, it's just, see, that's a recipe for neglect. And it's a recipe for disaster because there's no consequence to officials to, and there's, there's no incentive for officials to take into account um, the unidentified, to take into account the externalities. The only incentive is to get the short-term job done, you know, to save the budget that month. And, you know, I've noticed another dimension here that I find extremely disturbing, which is I completely agree that accountability should be available for the people affected by the terrible decisions involved here. And, you know, we really have to rethink the nature of immunities over the long term to discourage this type of, it doesn't look like benign neglect to me, it looks pretty malign, um, uh, especially when you consider the timeline of some of the emails that are coming out now, um, the shipment of bottled water to many of the state officials in the area, the fact 
fact that the GM plant actually stopped using the water because it was corroding its equipment, but somehow it was seen as still okay for the people. You know, all of these things are, are just astonishing. But then what I also see is that, you know, you get think tanks. Um, I think uh, either Cato or Heritage or, or one of the uh, usual suspects in this area um, said something along the lines of, you know, this is a total, totally discredits government. You know, and so I, I worry that, you know, we might be on the verge of this uh, very vicious cycle where essentially under austerity programs, the existing capacity of the state to protect people is undermined. And then the more that that's undermined and the more it predictably fails, that becomes a rationale for more austerity. Um, I don't know. I think that's a real fear, right? And we see that here, it's more general with public health. And even we can say with, you know, government health care systems, right? I mean, we could think about, you know, the, vet, the veterans, uh, each, uh, the veterans health care system, you know, you underfund, you don't have very strong systems and structures of governance. Uh, the system doesn't work very well and people get fed up with it. And then, yeah, you said public health doesn't work or government doesn't work. Um, and I think that's a more general problem that we seem to be facing in this country at this moment in time. Um, but I think Flint, to some extent, you know, Flint is almost, um, as you said, the facts are so egregious that it's, I worry that it's going to be too easy to put Flint to the side, to, you know, encapsulate it. Oh, my God, look what happens. This is just one of those, you know, really bad things with really bad actors and it, treat it as if it's an anomaly, not just the end of a spectrum of a wider set of problems. Um, environmental injustice is a you know, pervasive problem in this country, underfunding of public health, not taking into account health impacts of government decisions. That's why, you know, public health has been arguing for a long time for a health in all policy. But the fact that we make these decisions without thinking about the public health impact, the fact that cost-benefit analysis is often done in ways to only think about government dollars outlays rather than thinking about, you know, the, again, the public costs, the externalities and the, and the population base. These are much broader problems. And Flint is a really, really bad example of this. But, you know, we've had lead problems in water in other cities and in D.C. There's water problems in many country uh, cities right now, in school systems around the country. There are public health issues that are not being affected, uh, excuse me, not being considered, that are being undervalued. Um, and it's a Often, again, we, these are problems that have especially stark impacts on vulnerable populations. And Flint, to some extent, is just the most glaring example of a much bigger problem. So one of the things that we will have to do is take care of the people who have uh, been injured uh, through this. And uh, those sort of um, blaming lawsuits and so on may move some way in that direction. But I think there's also quite a lot of federal government uh, help coming. Uh, Sarah Rosenbaum writing on the Commonwealth uh, 
fund blog uh, discusses uh, Medicaid eligibility expansion to these folks through a, a, a 1115 uh, demonstration. Uh, and Sarah notes, quote, I'm hopeful Flint's tragedy will yield lessons on how best to invest healthcare resources as part of a response to a public health disaster. And I thought that maybe uh, uh, fits in well with um, Frank's uh, comments about uh, your uh, approach to this and the idea of solidarity and how uh, these sort of investment of healthcare resources uh, 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 also should apply to public health disasters. And I wonder whether you had any thoughts about that and how that might develop. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's fabulous that, you know, the Medicaid demonstration project was approved and that the healthcare resources and that the federal government's resources are coming in. Um, and that, you know, I, we should share that. It's, it's not, I think, sufficient. I'm concerned. I mean, I don't know that we even really know what a full response will be. I mean, we're going to have people in Flint, children in Flint, who are likely going to be affected their entire life. And it's, you know, it's not just a healthcare issue, um, but I think it's an important start that the federal government made. Um, but the costs and the impacts of what has happened is, you know, really the magnitude, I think, is something we can't even wrap our head around fully yet, because we know that children affected at, to the level of some of the ch children were affected in Flint are really going to have lifelong problems. Well, in the limited time that we have left, let's uh, move on to a, a, another topic briefly and something that certainly I've had problems getting my head around. The so-called Docs against Glocks case, uh, Walschleiger against Florida, has come up on Twill a couple of times. Um, I must say I'm pretty confused as to just how many times this case has now been argued. It's almost like the 11th Circuit has been circulating drafts in public. Where do we actually stand with this now and what's at stake, Wendy? It's almost, right, we're almost going from the sublime to the ridiculous or something like that here. Um, it's a very important case, but it's hard not to be amused or be amused about what's been going on in the 11th Circuit. So the 11th Circuit panel issued its third decision upholding Florida's Firearm Owners Protection Act last December. So three panel decisions, um, which is itself quite remarkable because it's not as if there was any intervening event. Um, and then finally in, um, oh, I believe it was February, early February, the 11th Circuit on Bonk vacated that third decision. So we now have three panel decisions vacated. It has to be a record. And the case is now being briefed. Oral argument is set for June 21st. And hopefully, at some point uh, this summer or next fall, we will actually have an on-bound decision that maybe the 11th Circuit will actually keep and not get rid of um, on this case. I, I think the case is a very important case. You know, amusement and it, its idiosyncrasies aside, there is a lot of increasing 
The question of the First Amendment's impact on the physician-patient relationship and physician speech and actually speech relating to health has been gaining in importance in the last few years and coming at it in a whole bunch of different directions, right? There is this case out of the 11th Circuit. There are, are the conversion therapy cases, particularly the 9th Circuit's pickup case. There are the abortion cases that relate to, you know, where states have been regulating what physicians must say. Those are compelled speech cases. This is a banned speech case. So there's a whole um, scan of cases coming out of the regulation of physician speech. And the courts are really all over the place. It's really complicated and hard to come up with an approach that doesn't either seem absurd, as I think some of the 11th Circuit panel decisions here were, or counterintuitive to reconcile the state's traditional capacity to regulate the physician-patient relationship and the practice of medicine a very long, important, well-respected tradition with the increasingly um, robust protection the courts have been given to the First Amendment. These are these are at these different um, strands of our law are now at loggerheads. Uh, legislatures are increasingly turning to the regulation of speech as a way of regulating the practice of medicine. And we need to come up with a way, our courts need to come up with a way of reconciling these tensions in ways that, you know, don't either jeopardize free speech and the physician's ability to give truthful information and health-related information to their patients or the state's ability to regulate the practice of medicine and protect patients from harmful practice. So it's an incredibly important issue. Um, I think what we have to do is hope that the full 11th Circuit will address it with the importance and seriousness and nuance that this issue deserves and not with some of the, I have to say, rather bizarre theories that was that we saw, at least especially in the panel's third decision. Yes, I think that's a really nice overview of the landscape uh, there, Wendy. And I I wanted to add, I was at a conference on Friday uh, on accountability in the professions, algorithmic accountability in the professions. Um, I co-convened this conference with some folks in law and computer science and journalism and some other professions. And during it, uh, actually one of the participants uh, mentioned her article to me on professional speech, which has just been published in the Yale Law Journal. And it's a really interesting effort to taxonomize the areas that you, that you just mentioned, Wendy. So toward the end of the article, uh, Claudia Hoped uh, divides the cases into uh, deference to the professional standard, codification of the professional standard, and compelled speech contradicting professional standards as some very interesting lines of case law in the professional speech area. So I'll be sure to link to that, and I'm really happy to see this because 
I, th I think we're going to see a great deal more conflict here. It also ties into our earlier discussions uh, about North Carolina Dental and some of the antitrust challenges to the professions. Now I guess we're seeing some state legislative challenges to professional standards in terms of forcing onto professionals certain uh, speech that they don't want or that could even contradict their professional standards. So it'll be very interesting to sort of contextualize this not only within the framework of First Amendment law, but also within the larger sort of neoliberal assault on the professions that we see in uh, North Carolina dental and some of the economic uh, literature on them. Absolutely. And, you know, underlying all of this, I think, is a question that the courts really struggle with, which is how do you review um, health-related evidence? Who, where are the burdens of uncertainty? Does it matter, right? I mean, what do we do? Does it matter whether um, the evidence is supportive or not? And um, does it matter if the state's purported claim to protect health is uh, plausible or implausible? And where do the burdens go on this? So I, I think these are really complicated issues and and um, the courts are struggling because the doctrinal approaches are um, not necessarily very well suited to the complexity of the questions. I should just add on the First Amendment side, too, I think there's a relationship here between where we're seeing the First Amendment assaults on FDA regulation um, and, you know, the questions about the FDA's ability to limit and regulate um, for example, off-label marketing. Again, it's it's the regulatory authority's ability to regulate health versus the First Amendment. So these are coming in many different directions. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Palmet for joining us. Great fun having you back with us, Wendy. I hope this is the beginning of uh, of you being a regular here. Oh, it was great fun. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to coming back sometime soon. Yes, and I wanted to add, uh, first of all, we are really looking forward to the Future of Public Health Conference um, that's going to be at Northeastern, and I see it's on April 15th, and so it's uh, called Individual Choice versus Collective Action with John Hansen as the uh, keynote, and I've been a huge fan of his work, so congratulations on what looks to be a great conference. And also, we're also really looking forward um, to your, your book, The Health of Newcomers, Immigration, Health Policy, and the Case for Global Solidarity uh, with Patricia Illingworth, uh, Wendy. So we um, definitely want to put our listeners on the alert that that'll be out in the fall. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry. That's Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? You can reach me at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 